Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. The Product Startup, episode 41. Jay Demerit talks about designing one-of-a-kind stereos made from reclaimed wood from the forests of British Columbia. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, where we talk about turning ideas into successful products step-by-step. I'm Philip Velitza, and thanks for listening to me today. In the last episode, we talked to Diane Gardner about small business tax deductions. So make sure to check out episode 40 if you want to hear more about business entity types, and small business accounting. Before we get started, I wanted to highlight one reviewer on iTunes who wrote, Well done podcast with great information and insight for getting a business off the ground. QDQD, thanks for leaving me a review. And thank you to everybody else that leaves reviews and sends me feedback. I definitely use your feedback to help improve the show. Typical to many podcasters, I get less than 1% feedback on the show and sometimes it's even a tenth of a percent so for every thousand downloads for example i might have one person that sends in an email or leaves a review or comments on something so if you haven't commented if you haven't let me know what you think of the show please do so whether you like it or you don't or you want something changed help me make it better for you help me turn it into the podcast that you want to listen to so thanks again for everyone that has done that already let's get started with the show Hi, Jay. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me, Philip. Pleasure as always. So you have a really amazing product. You're using reclaimed wood in a new way. You're using it to create speakers. Um, tell me how you got the idea for such a product and why it's so important to you. There's a couple reasons. The first one is my background is actually in product design. So I'm always looking at the world and and kind of not only as you know as we're taught as product designers to look for holes, to figure out kind of not only in a market, but also in, in in the product itself and and not only in the way it's used, but also in the way it looks. I was a, an athlete for 12 years and I didn't get into the design world much. And when I came out of being an athlete, I wanted to get back into the creative world. Obviously, you go to your four-year degree and you want to always use it. And, and design thinking is one thing, and I definitely use design thinking every day, but to actually put into practice product design was another thing. And as a stereo company, we we started to make suitcase boom boxes. So we, we would reclaim old suitcases and, and turn them into ghetto blasters, so to speak, kind of uh, staying in the green and, and upcycling and recycling and all that kind of stuff was something that we started with. But now, fast forward a year, and, and then I'm thinking to myself going, okay, what else can I do as the designer to evolve our company? What other product lines can we can we start to think about? And it was as easy as looking around me. Right now, I live in Vancouver and, and Whistler, British Columbia. Now, if anyone knows where British Columbia is, it's in the Pacific Northwest, just north of the U.S. border in Canada. And basically what happens here is not only is it a ski town, it's a mountainous town, but at the at the end of the day, there's also a lot of other uh, logging projects. Most log homes from around the world get wood from the Pacific Northwest, not only just based on, uh, on how beautiful it is, but also just the species itself. Cedar, hemlock, Douglas fir, all of these really kind of unique woods, not only to the Pacific Northwest, 
um, but also woods that people really want around the world. In the winters, I'd go skiing, and uh, in the summers, we're out on uh, you know camping trips. And what I'd find is that there were so many old logging projects, logging cuts, and I would see these these unused piles and piles and piles. And, and believe me, when I tell you abundance out here in wood, it's so true. There's so much wood here that's just been cast away. So I thought, you know what? There's all this beautiful wood that's all sought after. Why don't we try to start to put speakers in this wood, not only to create more art in speakers, but also to reclaim the beautiful wood that's around us, where more or less it's just sitting there to rot. I saw a void in the stereo world of, you know, everyone has beautiful stereos in their homes, but they're generally big black boxes that either sit on the side of your TV, sit under your TV, or sit in the corner of your house. Now, as a designer, my job is to try to make that look cooler, maybe make that into a different uh, uh, part of your home design. So those things started to kind of creep in as, uh, you know, I saw a lot of this wood being used for coffee tables. And I'm thinking, well, that that's an awesome piece of live edge coffee table, but you still need a house stereo. Why don't, you, why don't we just put that stereo right in the middle of the room? Or why don't we take a log round and then put a speaker right in it. And that's how the rocket logs were born. So many products are created just by combining two different loves that maybe people haven't combined before. So that's really interesting that uh, you've been able to do that. When you were going through this process, did you already have a background in some sort of the audio design, audio and engineering, or did you use existing designs and kind of scale those? Or how did you just get started from saying, well, we're, we were using converted boom boxes or suitcases, and now we're going to do something different? That's a good question. Uh, the short answer to that is no, I don't. I didn't have any big experience in stereos themselves. But I mean, essentially, uh, as far as the brand is concerned, what we do is we create party boxes, you know, and I've always been a social butterfly. I've always been into the mix of, you know, the social environment. And uh, because I didn't have any technical knowledge, that's why my business partners are the ones that have that technical knowledge. So I work with them uh, to, to make sure that, uh, the sound is, is, is quality. We do all the sound testing and essentially what we're doing is, you know, again, like I had touched on generally right now, you know, what, what your speaker is, is a blow molded or a, a, a tech molded piece of plastic or metal that sits in the corner, or it's a wood cabinet. That's a square. Now it's only because a speaker needs a certain amount of volume to breathe, to work properly. And it's engineered to the point where that volume space makes that speaker perform. And those cabinets are specifically built to that specification of that speaker. Now, that process for me doesn't change. You know, we still match the speakers that we use, say, in our boom boxes for the suitcases. Essentially, that's a box. And we know the volume that that box has. Now, we and I design that to specifically fit into that volume of space. So we don't we don't put a huge speaker in a volume that needs to be too big. We put the speaker around that volume so at least the sound quality will be the same as it would be if it was just your your traditional designed square box. Right. Essentially as a designer, we're just changing the box <laughs> and what it looks like, not necessarily the amount of volume that it creates the sound with. And that was I guess our, the key to our company and especially through these rocket logs so talk a little bit about how you chose all the components, all the various pieces that go inside a typical Bluetooth speaker. We selected a speaker that, again, requires, you know, a, just about six by six inches of box volume space, right? So we use a 12-inch log round, for instance. We core out the five-inch hole in the front. And then on the backside, we core out eight inches of circle on the backside. 
And then we have this design cone that has another four inches of space in that along with the electronics. We put that in through the back side of the log. We put the speaker in through the front side of the log. And now we have the traditional performance for that specific speaker. Not to mention, we've done a lot of research on speakers themselves. And, and there's a lot of speaker companies now that because the world is getting smaller, because our products are getting smaller from our phones to electronics and all this kind of stuff, there are a lot of speakers out there that are specifically designed for smaller enclosures. We did a lot of product testing throughout the process of the Rocket Log and to make sure that the speaker that we use is a full range speaker that is designed for smaller enclosures. So you don't need that huge volume space either for the speaker to perform. So we, we create volume through the log by routering out the front side and the back side. We bring in the cone that creates a little bit more air volume, and then together with that speaker that doesn't need as much air volume space, now we have a viable product that is small enough to carry around, that's Bluetooth enough to be compatible to you know, your other speakers you might throw in your backpack or put in your bike rack. And, and, and now we have this unique piece of design that you get to be a part of, that you get to pick the stains of, that you get to have this one-of-a-kind piece of wood burl or different grain that, that truly is one of a kind, but yet we're still giving this portable speaker performance that can rival the other performances and the other speakers that are out there today. Yeah, absolutely understood leveraging existing technology. And I want to get back to that for sure. But one thing that piqued my interest was how you said that you went and tested different configurations. So can you talk a little bit more about when you, know, you first had an idea, you were looking at some of these logs and thought, man, they deserve a better life than what they have now. They're just laying there and no one's really appreciating their beauty. What were some of the steps that you took after that to say, okay, now I'm going to try to marry these, my two loves, my two hobbies and see if it will even work? Well, that's a good question as well. You know, and I, I think just like any, any design process, it's the process. First, I got to find a long log that I can cut into 12 inch rounds. Then I got to cut a hole in it and see if they crack. <laughs> and then from there, I got to, uh, I started to test what, okay, what happens, uh, at what point of the drying process should I core out the log? So I start learning that if I let those, if I cut them into rounds and I just let them dry as a, as a full round, they will check more violently and they'll check more, almost to the point where I can't use them. But mm -hmm. say for instance, if I cut that log in the round and I, and I get that hole out right away, not only is it drying from the outside, it's also drying from the inside, allowing the cracks to actually be smaller. And then we can actually turn this into a viable product. So there was not only in testing in uh, the first thing we tested was the nature itself. Can these things actually not break apart all the time? And so we worked first off with that. Is this even possible? And that was just wood testing. That's making sure right. that the product was good. And, and we did find out that if you core the wood out right away, and it dries from both sides, it doesn't check as violently. And the center of a wood round has a heart in it. And wood checks, and by checking, I mean cracking. And the big checks usually come from that heart of the wood really twisting. But if you take the heart of the wood out, now you have this ability to stop the violence, if you know what I mean. Right. So it checks maybe a little bit on the outside and a little bit on the inside. But for us, as the wood process, as we cure the wood, as we sand it down, one of the steps we do is we we put a small bit of epoxy in the cracks, and then that makes the, the wood solidify, and it actually turns into these little beautiful donuts that we can turn into speakers. So talk about your decision to use wood in the first place, because it obviously gave you some challenges on the manufacturing side, but there are some benefits for acoustics. Isn't that right? Wood has great acoustic properties, especially the soft tone woods like a fir and a cedar, which we use not only because it's easier to woodwork, softer woods are allowing, you know, 
routers to go through them a little bit easier. Where if we were to use like a maple, for instance, a much denser wood, that's really hard to put router through and it takes a longer time. And that was all part of the process, which wood we should use, which wood checks the worst, which wood, you know, dries fastest. Cedar dries really well. Cedar is actually quite a lighter wood too. So cedar is actually our most ideal wood, but we're in abundance of forests of cedar, fir, and hemlock. So those are the three we try to use. But we also like the fact that Every wood is different, and and we like the fact that they'll all stain different, and they all will be truly a -a one-of-a-kind product, which is in the design process something we want to create, even on a scalable level. You talk about the different wood species and how they affect your manufacturing. What were some of the other design factors that forced you to go a certain direction with the design? The next process is, okay, technology. How do I combine you know, again, this neat thing needs to be portable. So let's stay within a 12 inch round. So it's still light enough, but still heavy enough. But when you set it down, it's not going to fall over. You know, if you, if you accidentally run into it, it's not going to be like this really light piece of equipment that's just going to crack. So I still wanted it to have a little bit of weight to it. Uh, we tell people that say, Oh, it is pretty heavy. And I say, yes, it's a little bit heavy, but that's because it's real wood. And, and, you know, I'd rather have a real wood product than some cheap made, thing that tries to be wood, if you know what I mean. So again, that was part of the design process. And again, the technology side, you know, what I learned about working with speakers is that there's a lot of cool design in speaker, whether it's a plastic cone or whether it's got a a metal tweeter or, you know, it's got a paper cone that has like a a fun texture on it. Or some of these cones are made of like a certain Kevlar kind kind of material that has a weaving Mm -hmm. texture in it. And what I found in speakers is that there's a lot of art in just the way they look. And I don't know why we're always trying to grill them and hide them in a place where, you know, in a home where you're not really kicking your speakers around. Yeah, I get if you're, you know, if you're bringing these things to a party or whatever and you're setting them up and there's going to be 100 people putting their drinks on them. Yeah, you want them to have a little bit of protection. But for the most part, if you're in your own home, you're creating your own design you know, you're not going to be really treating your speaker to the point where you can't see the speaker. You know, you don't need to grill it all the time. And that's one of the options we we have on a rocket log. If you want to put a grill on it, you can. If you are the person that's going to be putting it in your bike rack and putting it over wherever and, you know, kicking it around, that's fine. That's no problem. But at the end of the day, I still think that there's a lot of beauty in just in the way they look, not just the way they sound. So you mentioned sound quality. What are some of the things that you did to test the speaker components or to work with the proper speaker manufacturers? We found that the six inch, uh, which is the speaker we use, we use a six inch full range speaker. So you're getting a full range of sound uh, from the bass to the highs of highs. Uh, we tested a bunch of those, not only in the technical waves. Our sound guys have these little uh, microphones, and they put them through sound tests to make sure they're hitting the levels that we want to have in a, in a, in a small, portable speaker. So we tested five or six of them. Um, we found uh, the company that we liked the most gave us the best so-called more bang for our buck. But going back to the texture of the speaker, this speaker in particular has a built-in metal tweeter built in right from the front. So if you see in the, in the images of our rocket logs, it's, it's like a little bullet. It looks like a little bullet tweeter from the front, but it's also made of, uh, of brushed aluminum metal. Now talk about toughness. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, plastic cone speaker. So again, you're going to get that poly toughness of it. So if you have it outside and it starts to rain a little bit, it, it'll, it'll hold rain for a little bit. It's not waterproof, but it's a poly speaker with a metal center. So that's technically a, a water resistant material. If you run into the speaker from the front, that metal will stop your foot before your foot punctures the speaker. And then the third reason, because we wanted to use that speaker, because it not only did it sound great, and, and in our, within our price range, we want it to hold, but it's a powerful speaker. It's got 60 watts of power, which, you know, your general 
portable Bluetooth speaker usually runs anywhere between 5 and 25 watts. So we thought as a startup, we don't have a million dollar R&D department to have a 10 inch glass tube that brings in the base of our speaker. And, you know, some of these Bose and B&O speakers of the higher, higher end, some of these are, are even bigger than our price range. So we kind of wanted to stay within that mid-range price range of about three, $400. But we thought not only will we, will we work on having the, the dial in our sound, we'll beat it with power too. We'll bring more juice so you can actually pump your party in your house. You can bring this thing to a park and really create a party too. And uh, so all of those questions were certainly answered in, the, in this one speaker. And the, the cool metal design of it brought more of the art side of the speaker, not to mention brushed aluminum, the center of that speaker, because we are a design your own company, you're a customize your own company. We can mask that and paint it too, because brushed aluminum is one of the most paintable things and, 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 and surfaces that you can do. So if we are also creating art, we can paint that a different color. We can paint it gold if you want gold. If you if you got red accents in your home, you can do a red bullet and red screws with your natural wood thing that matches your cupboards. Now you got not only something that looks amazing in your home, has double the power of your normal Bluetooth speaker, but it actually fits into your home design. So, you know, that was kind of the process of all those things from technology to look to actually making sure that the nature side, the the real beauty of our product in the wood still was was able to create the box that would create the sound. No, I appreciate the thorough explanation. It seems like you guys went through a lot of testing and iterating the design to make sure you came across something that would be well received in the market. You know, as you first started the design process, did you do any type of outreach at all to your target market to see if they would buy something like this or if other people would want it? Or did did you have some sort of a, a in, inside confidence to say, you know, based on our previous experience, this is definitely going to do okay? Um, a little bit of both. We live in a place up in Vancouver where big Rudy coffee tables and, and live edge pieces are very sought after. So I know that Natural wood products are popular, just in my own experience. And living in the Sea to Sky corridor up here, I know a lot of friends in high-end homes. As we got along the way, I first made the prototype. And then within you know, two or three months, we brought it to parties, or we took it to bonfires, or we, did, we didn't throw it in the bonfire, thankfully, or right. no one did. But By accident. Um, the rocket logs kind of took off when we started to bring it places. And people were just like, wait, that's a speaker? And you know, just more or less the reaction. And then it was, uh, okay, how much is it? And then it's, oh, it's three ninety nine. And then, oh, that's not bad for like a handmade product. And, and then we're like, yeah, and you, and you can pick, it, pick your own design and your own stains. And, you know, people really took to the idea. And I, and I guess it, it wasn't a mass market as far as like how market testing, but it was a local market testing. And, and we think that we want to start in our local market first anyway because, we, right. because of the product in its product testing phase is only a year, uh, just over a year in. So we still know that we're in our third model right now. So if we had our original model, now we've changed our battery and our Bluetooth. And now with the Kickstarter that we're, that we're in right now, we're actually raising money to produce the back cone part into one electric part. So the electronic part will have everything built in it. It'll have a more of a professional and engineered based on the things we've learned, but it'll have uh, inlaid power switch, plus and minus uh, volume right on the system, It'll have battery indicator lights so you know how much juice you got in your battery. And the best part, it's going to have a USB so you can charge your phone now on the go. So, nice. you know, all those, all these kind of features now we've added in a third prototype 
And now we're ready to start push them out to a world market and see, um, uh, you know, and we know that we can at least have a viable business here locally in Vancouver, which is, you know, which we know likes this kind of handmade craft goods. But we also know that there are a lot of handmade craft markets out there. And those are the people this year now that we have. And hopefully after we hit our Kickstarter uh, target, that we can actually go out and scale these things to the point where we can be a boutique marketplace item. And that's this year's plan. <laughs> Definite progression on the, the scale of uh, manufacturing. And I guess when you're talking about your step one and two products, your stage one or two designs, um, can you share at all how many of those you sold or were they just internal designs that you tested and, and then iterated on? We first did a run of, let's see, we did a run of 20 to start. Um, we had these lithium ion blue batteries with a built-in switch and you know it just didn't work very well in all honesty they were they were cheaper batteries we didn't really find the right battery fan manufacturer so we immediately knew okay first things first let's change our battery changed our battery came back in bluetooth bluetooth works okay but now okay now let's work on how we find another bluetooth factory all right now, now we got a couple more samples coming in now we combine that with the new battery that we like and then we did another run of 50 and then after that, we've done probably about 50 to 75 more with this new model that was working pretty well, all while we're designing this whole new cone that's going to have all the specs we've just learned, but also mm -hmm. built into one electronic piece. So overall, we've sold about 150 locally. And well, I've, I've sent a bunch down to the States to my friends that wanted them or whatever. Um, but that's about where we're at. And as far as the, the, um, the Kickstarter now, we've just launched and we've sold 150 in eight days. Wow, that's great. We're getting to the point now where people are getting to know us, getting to trust us, which is another thing I've learned throughout the process. And people are very cool to say, that's amazing. But as far as them giving me the credit card is a totally different thing. <clears throat> and what I learned is that they need to trust the system. You know, they need to they need to hear it once, then they need to see that their buddy's got one, and then they need to hear it twice, and then they'll buy it. <laughs> so we're kind of getting to the buddy stage where the buddies start to have them and now people are like, Hey, that's cool. What is that? So now, you know, again, now we create not only a more scalable idea in having this electronic cone that will allow our processes to be three times faster because more we're more plug and play instead of produ producing seven different parts and putting them all together by hand. Not only does that add more human error in seven different parts and soldering and all these other things, it'll make our processes quicker. But then now if we can scale again, based on our marketing and based on if we can get some sales through this Kickstarter, now we can we can viably make thousands of these a year. You know, we know where the wood is, we know where to find it, we know how to cut it, we know how to hole it. Now we're going to get this electronic part that'll make us be able to be more plug and play. And then we can combine those two loves of well-built technology from somewhere else that we can combine with what we do best at, finding logs, getting them, and taking them out of uh, out of logging projects and turning them into something pretty and repurposing them, them into stereos. And, you know, we love that combination. And we hope now this year we can make a thousand of them because now we have a viable business that can be successful. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that I wanted to underscore is, you know, a lot of people think that you have to come out the gate with a thousand units or something like that. So I love that you were able to test at a small unit run and then iterate again with maybe a slightly larger run and focusing on local feedback because really that's where most of the products should start because I, I imagine you understand your local market better than any other market in the world. You know, you're totally on point. And I think 
I think that's kind of the way that we want to do all of our products. You know, we're starting to learn our new problem, and that's shipping these because again, they're they're twelve pounds each. Are the t- right. they're done with the speaker? You know, again, these are these are sixty watt speakers, so the magnet on them is quite big. I, again, you're talking about a twelve inch log round that's about five inches thick. Now you're talking about something that that's a little bit heavy. So now we're you know you're talking about fifteen inch boxes that are twelve pounds a piece. Right now, if I want to ship one alone through UPS to the UK, it's like $127. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. I know that that's not a viable business plan. So that that kind of immediately said, okay, let's switch our ideas to target the market here first. Let's make sure that we're not, as a company, because it took us a year to develop the product before we can even start to push it out. Again, now I've spent a lot of money just trying to make sure that the product's right and we're not getting these things sent back because that's going to cost us even more money. Let's 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 concentrate. You know, it, it kind of tells you the story as the story is unfolding, if you know what I mean. And that's one of the things that immediately told us is like, okay, people here like them. Let's concentrate on local things while we make sure that we, the design is right before we can even start to think about shipping around the world. Now we're to the point where we can start to think about that as we continue to refine the product, hopefully get this Kickstarter hit. And then while that produce that produce of cone is being fixed and made, we can figure out shipping logistic issues. So, you know, we're kind of trying to foresee the problems before they come, but also making sure that we're learning along the way. And that's kind of been the process well starting in our local market. So that definitely has been the best way for us, especially when we're making a, a handmade product. You know, I think you know, for us to make a million of these a year and say, hey, we'll just put all of our processing over to overseas, you know, that's not really a viable business plan for us. You know, our, our vision as a company is to always be boutique, is to always be a custom company where, where we're a handmade product. And we understand that maybe that'll hurt our sales, but we don't, you know, our end game is to sell like thousands and thousands of these, not millions of these. It's just not really plausible but that's fine because you know we like the boutique craft market small batch so to speak with your beers or whatever same type right same type of idea but in a, in a in a unique stereo very good point and you need to know what type of company that you want to be when you grow up i guess right because a lot of people have these aspirations that they're going to take over the world or and you don't necessarily even need to do that in order to you know if one of your goals is to provide a living for your family and to encourage small business development in your area and hire employees because you want to give back you can still do all of those things without competing with the apples of the world well, exactly and that and that's always you know our original kickback is you know well, I bought my bows for 300 bucks and are you guys kind of like bows? And I'm like, no disrespect bows. I have a bows. They're amazing. They're amazing pieces of equipment. But at the end of the day, our concept of the company is that we want to be something more crafty and more and more design worthy of your home stereo or of your personalized on the go stereo. You know, we, we do coffee table stereos where you get to pick, you know, again, now and we're talking downtown living, for instance, where. Nowadays, San Francisco, Vancouver, Chicago, you buy a 750-square-foot place for $700,000 now. You know, yeah. like we're, we're, we live in a market where your middle class will still have to buy a pot coffee table. You're still going to buy a nice stereo, but you don't have the space that you're going to need three rooms to put your little stereos in each room. Like Basically, we live in, in one-room one places now or big open-plan nice kitchens with beautiful cabinets and, and really nice accent colors. Now, imagine if you could have your coffee table that fits into that room, and then you have red screws to match your the red accent on your couch. You have the sound system with a 10-inch subwoofer built right into it. You have 400 watts of power that's going to have much bigger sound than your general 
black box things that are going to sit in front of your TV, but yet you don't even realize it's your stereo. It just looks like it's part of your home design. But yet you're in a space that easily will be able to fill that sound, but yet you're doing that in a more design conscious way. So that's, again, where we don't want to produce a million of these. We want to produce a really cool and unique piece of equipment for your home. As you went through this process, did you hit some stubbing blocks where you thought maybe we're not on the right track or there's something's not quite right? And people often project this idea that they went from step one to five in this linear path. And in hindsight, maybe there were some starts and stops. Did you have any of those? We are getting more and more of that. You know, we've done a lot of different boom boxes. We've done a lot of different, uh, you know, products. We uh, So we've kind of streamlined the process. Um, say, for instance, um, we wanted to give the customer full range to design whatever they did. So I, I would buy, you know, seven different speakers of around the eight-inch woofer size. I would buy mm-hmm. five different speakers of around the three, four-inch size. And we would combine them. We'd use different amps. But then we realized that, with all these moving parts, we don't actually don't have a viable business plan. We're not actually making money because we're spending more time in the process without actually streamlining our process where we can scale these or make them enough where we can make a lot of these in a week because we're spending too much time trying to change this speaker to that and making sure that that amp works with this six, the six speaker of that size. And, you know, so what we learned first off was that we got to streamline our processes. So for instance, now our boom boxes, we do two set designs. And we just have little small accessories that allow us to, for you as the customer to accessorize those. So you can change color scheme or you get to pick one of two designs. Same with our wall pieces, same with our coffee table. So instead of being like a, all of the equipment is accessorizable, we make the equipment the same and we make all of the things that make that equipment work, like the wood stain, the standoffs of the coffee tables, screw colors, paintable bullets. That's the accessorizable part. So our processes don't change too much as far as how we build them, how fast we can build them, but yet we're still giving full range of like accessorizability, if you know what I mean. Looking back, did you ever have any pushback because of that or do you feel like you might alienate a portion of your audience? Um, well, because there isn't customization in speakers right now, we were able, that is one of the answers we found and that was kind of my original anxiety. I'm like, well, no, because like the original idea is like I want to be full custom. I want them to be able to, you know, really have free range. But now then I realize mm-hmm. that a, that doesn't work on, on a, on a money-making level of like how to build the business. Number two is that they're still getting way more customization options than before. <laughs> so they're still stoked and they're still getting this unique product. And, uh, and, and that is kind of where our, our real honeypot is, is our processes are still set. We know the guys that we employ can make them and make them fast and don't have to do all this random stuff where Jay, the designer, has to always be involved. You know, Jay, the designers now created this the, the, this template, and then we get the production guys to put all that stuff together in a much easier way. And, but yet, the customer is still stoked because they're still getting five choices in how they design their home speaker. Right, it's still personal to them. It feels like it, they have a connection to it. It's not just something they could pick it up at a box store. Exactly. Exactly. One thing I wanted to ask you now that you've you've been growing your audience steadily, obviously one of the keys to a successful Kickstarter is growing your audience. How have you been able to do that? And did you find anything else that was important in, in being successful on Kickstarter? You're about halfway funded now and we've got 20 days to go as we record. And the day this will go live is the last day of the Kickstarter. That's right. You got one last chance. Go and buy. <laughs> buy, buy, buy. <laughs> 
Uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, and that's a great question. I think um, with the Kickstarter, you have these kind of plans about different targets. One is, you know, we we set a, uh, the reach goal of uh, of how we press go on the rocket box. So everyone knows that in the Kickstarter, it's kind of through pre buy sales, but you know, we we set fifty grand as our target because it costs us twelve grand US just to just to press go on the production side. So they got to build the mold, they got to press go, and then from there you have a minimum order number. So for us right. now, the minimum order is 300. So, you know, that are already pops, pops up our minimum spend at even a press go on the rocket log at just over 40 grand us. Now you talk about marketing and now you talk about ways that, okay, now we press go. Now we got to sell through, you know, you know, I think we're at about 170 backers right now for rocket logs. So, you know, we're almost there to 300 for our minimum order, but from there, we don't just want to stop. So now it's about using the Kickstarter, hopefully, on our stretch goals. So if we can go beyond that, our two goals right right from the off of any money we make over the 50 to press go is we need to get people that are going to help us push this out, help us create the content to do that. And then the second thing is to hire a production person to help us produce these things at a, at a bigger rate. So, you know, on the marketing side, that is that's one of the biggest keys beyond if we can hit our goal. So that's going to be, again, a huge phase now moving forward in if we can hit our target is to how are we going to push these out to the right markets. And that goes into a little bit of research of what we've done in, the, in, in this beginning phase of who are the craft markets we like, who are the craft markets we think would like these boutique products. And then from there, it's about creating a marketing campaign that will hopefully allow us to sell those in those market mar- small batch markets. Is that a basically a scaled up version of what you had to do to launch your Kickstarter? Like what were some of the preparations that you had to make? You know, some people assume that you just flip a button on Kickstarter and and people kick down your door with wads of cash uh, trying to like jumpstart your product. But in reality, there's all this work up front that it takes to to corral everybody and, and make sure that, you know, that it's going to fund successfully. Yeah. And I'm, I'm laughing because you're so right. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, this, this has been over four months of planning, uh, for the Kickstarter. There's a lot of different ways of the process. One, you have to make sure that your pricing's right. You have to make sure again, your targets are right based on future sales, based on future marketing ideas, based on all these kind of things. There's these templates you can use to make sure that because Kickstarter is, an, is a crowdfunding uh, stage that you use mainly through social media marketing. So you have to get your social media content right to when you start to roll out how to target your markets. you got to have a budget so you can run ads on Facebook, on Instagram, and all these other things. It costs money to run your Kickstarter. It's not like you said, just press and go and say and hit and hope, you know. You got to be able to make sure you're hitting your markets. You got to make sure you have a marketing budget that's going to allow you for people to see this in a social media world that's so saturated that, you know, it's like a needle in a haystack where I'm looking at for, for that one craft idea person that's going to be looking at the computer at three o'clock when I happen to roll it out, you know, like Facebook ads, fa- thankfully target those markets. So there's, there's science behind that. And then the third thing, again, at talking about budget is that, you know, you need a, a semi-substantial budget to try to hit your markets in the right way, you know. So we originally budgeted $5,000 to to do the marketing side, Facebook and Instagram. We're, we're two weeks in and we're almost out already, mainly because, you know, just like anything, 
you find the markets that hit, you, you put testing out on the other ones, and but those don't hit, then that's just kind of a loss of money. So then you got to dump more money in markets right. that are available and that are working. So it's kind of one of those types of things where you, the Kickstarter is it, it, it's it's fully a uh, an, it kind of like design. It's on the fly thinking. It's okay that didn't work. Let's change that. Okay, let's change that image because we're getting the ad image that we just sent out. That one's getting more traction. So that means that image might be more powerful. So let's change the image and of our ads to that one and use that one mm-hmm. only instead of that. Or or let's change the video. Can you talk about the videos that you created for your campaign and which one of them worked best? So we created three content videos. One is how do we make our product, like the in the shop, how do we sand, two-minute how-to video. This is where – this here's the forest where we find our product. Anyone that will go to our Kickstarter campaign can see those videos or just go to our website and see those videos too or our social medias. But then it's like, okay, now we need a lifestyle video. People need to know where this product's going to go. People are going to know where it's going to look like in their kitchen. People want to know like – Oh, there's the, there's the rocket log in the park. Oh, I can bring this to the park. You know, like there's a lot of different lifestyle shots. You need to make sure people know what they can use in this user experience. And then the third thing is because, um, you know, we're a customizable company. We show, we want to show our range of the rocket log. We want to show them in 15 different colors. We want to show them in, you know, um, with a guy in a onesie that's in a red and white plaid onesie and we, and he's got a red and white, uh, red and white rocket log. You know what I mean? Like we want to show that you can truly customize things to your, these to your lifestyle. So that was kind of the third video we wanted to prove because that's one of our major flags in the sand is you get to customize it. You know, this isn't just a log stereo that you can buy. Yes, you can buy it and it's going to be cheaper if you want the basic model. But at the end of the day, if, if you, if red is your color, we want you to have red screws and a red bullet and, and a red back cone because you know that you're going to bring this more places. You know what I mean? So, you know, we had to market that in a certain way and therefore creating the content. So that cost money. We had photo shoots. We had we have paying videographers and video editors to do that. So, you know, people, I guess the you know, one thing we did learn and one thing I did learn is is make sure you budget right too before launch. And, you know, a lot of money spent before even launch. And that is the key to a good campaign as well as having the the content ready to think and change in the fly, which is what we're doing now. Um, and, and it's working, you know, we changed our, our content this week and already we're seeing a small spike again, back in the right direction because our original content started to plateau. So, you know, again, like watching the parameters of Kickstarter coming in, actually being on, um, and having a four week plan rather than just saying, okay, here we go, press go and see what happens. You know, like there's way more, planning that that that's involved right. in it um which has also been so interesting for me to learn um to to learn about the process of it to to be interested in it and also to 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 learn the stress of a 35 day campaign <laughs> well and so talk about that for a little bit what were some of the surprises in the marketing that you or some of the lessons that you learned on the imagery or some of the calls to action or even the the copy that you're using that you thought man i didn't think that this would convert this way or maybe you had you know three or four options and and you finally picked option c and and that caused that spike that you're talking about sure uh well a couple one is um we use an influencer marketing program. I was an athlete for many years. And throughout that time as, as a professional soccer player, I learned a lot of uh, good relationships with other athletes and other uh, entertainers and people like that. So, you know, I got like, for instance, I got Steve Nash, you know, very, you know, two-time MVA MVP. Um, he designed a rocket log. Uh, my wife is actually a, a, an Olympic gold medalist in skiing. Um, she designed one. And um, it's interesting. So we have, we have eight different marketers from, NHL athletes to NBA players to um, 
famous actresses and stuff like that. So now on paper, we think we're going to sell a million of them, right? Because we have access to, you know, 5 million people on Twitter that we can just on an emotion press go, right? So we think that's going to be the easy part. Oh, we'll get sales through that. But at the end of the day, an influencer, they don't have time to be posting like we're going to post as a company like all day long. You know, the most you can get out of an influencer marketer is generally like two or three posts through a month campaign or, you know, and even though they're my friends, I'm not going to just berate them with like, Hey, can you post again? Hey, can you post again? That's not how influencer marketing works. So we did find that it hasn't worked as well as we thought. We thought, you know, Steve Nash would sell a million, a million logs because he's got 3 million followers. Make sure that you, you, you create a plan with them that's more detailed as to how many posts you're going to get. Have a strategic plan to make sure that those ads or those posts transfer in a more concentrated way because ours have kind of fallen by the wayside, yes, we're getting sales. Yes, because they're my friends. I haven't had to pay them a lot of money or any money for the most part. You know, so that's still to our advantage. So we use that. That's one thing I've learned is maybe to target that a little bit more. Or maybe use those to a more concentrated advantage rather than just using them to press click, if you know what I mean. Yep, understood. That's one thing I learned on that side of things. Clicks that have worked was our lifestyle video. Keeping it at like 30 to 45 seconds. I do know that generally that is a, a running trend. Keeping videos anywhere from 30 to 30 seconds or less, even now Instagram videos, 15 seconds, depending on your product, you know, like we want to make sure we show it where it's from, that it's customizable and that it can be used in a lifestyle. So that generally takes a little bit more than 15 seconds than a 360 degree video of like a product itself. You know, like we're more of a lifestyle product. So we wanted to make sure it was like 30 to 45 seconds. Our lifestyle video right now is getting our, our, our most traction. Our how-to video is is uh, a little bit longer. It's a minute and 30 seconds. But to show our whole process, to show that like our true craft, it did take a minute and 30 seconds to show that. And, and you know, that the audio files, the tech people, they want to see what's inside. They want to hear more about the technical specs. And that takes a little bit longer than to show like people in a park party. And you know what I mean? So right. there's still use in that video. But for the most part, that on the content providing that's more or less where we're, where we're finding a lot of traction is the shorter lifestyle video. Great. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that. It would be uh, wrong of me to let you off the hook without asking you this question. Uh, you alluded to it a little bit, but you used to be a professional soccer player for the U.S. men's national team. How has that experience at all prepared you for what you're doing right now? Have you been able to take away anything from it? Um, I, I mean, yeah, 100%. My story started, you know, I was kind of behind, you know, I graduated from design school in Chicago. I was a college athlete, but I just missed out on the draft. I didn't get picked. Um, so I thought, you know, my career might have been over, but then I, I took it upon myself. I packed my bags and moved to England. Right. And I started, uh, I, I started playing in the 12th division in the UK soccer pyramid, but within two years I'd navigated my path and I was playing in the Premier League against, you know, the Manchester United's and Chelsea's of the world. And, you know, I, I played in, in a world cup. So, you know, you think about the way that you prepare as an athlete, you can, you can do it as a, a long-term goal setting, you know, or you can think about each game matters, you know, and so that, that kind of ideas, that kind of mindset as an athlete that I learned by all of the adversities that I faced are, are, are now hard, starting right now as a, as a designer. Yes, thankfully I have the background, just like I had the background as an athlete to try. That's one thing I'm learning as a, as a designer. Yes, I have a, I have a degree in product design, so I'm, I'm not out of my element here. I know what I'm doing as far as way things should look, textures to make sure that combinations are right, using the right designers and people around me that are going to make our product pro, as well as um, using the athlete side. Is that what's a mentality? How do I take each game by game, so to speak, 
to develop this product into a long-term goal is how do I become a world cup winner, you know, a world cup athlete in a, in a, in the stereo world. So I am definitely using my experience as an athlete, turning that into a designer, but the struggle isn't, is any, isn't any different. You know, I've had success as an athlete and I can use that success to help with influencer marketing campaigns. I can help with connections that I have in, in big businesses or sponsors that I've, I've had along the way. I will use those things that I've used as an athlete. So yes, that'll help me in, in the marketing and business side. But for the most part, you know, I, I think of myself now as that guy that just left for England with a backpack and a passport. I've just started the design world. And it's a little bit humbling, in all honesty, to now sit behind a computer and relearn how to design and make mistakes and try to figure out like the path of an entrepreneur. You know, by no means is it, is it any different. But now I'm just that new green behind the ear guy that's trying to learn his trade. You know what I mean? So that's been a little bit challenging. Um, and also not only that is that the design world, just like the fashion world and, and the technology world, you know, these are people that have been doing this for a very long time. That's like me as a, ten, a 12 year pro looking at a rookie and being like, oh, what does this guy know? You know, like that's been a barrier for me is, oh, this guy's just an athlete that thinks he's, he can be a designer now. He can use his professional athlete status to become popular, but they don't know that my background is in design. So there's little hurdles that I've actually had to go through in this first almost two years of you know, almost creating a, leg a legitimacy for myself, kind of like proving people that I'm, I'm not just a dumb athlete, you know, like I'm a guy that actually has an experience in this, wants to be better at this, and then now kind of turning heads in, in our production and in the actual end product. So yeah, it's been, it's been challenging, but it's been, uh, you know, kind of proud of myself to, that I've been able to kind of come through these barriers to create a product that people are really liking and are now buying. And now it's just about, again, goal setting, micro goal setting, and using that mentality as an athlete and, and providing it to being a business owner. And, uh, you know, I'm really enjoying it, but I'm, I'm also just as stressed out as I was an athlete to try to make it. So, you know, th those are the kind of challenges that I'm facing, but by no means, you know, am I not enjoying it? I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it and enjoy it. And, uh, you know, it's all part of the process and that's what design teaches you. And, you know, I'm having fun with it and there's a lot of people that are having fun with, with me. So we'll keep it going for sure. You know, you definitely alluded to a lot of things there. And one of the things that I got from that was that it, product design is a mental game just like it is in playing professional sports. A lot of the uh, wins and losses can be attributed to your head not being in the right spot, right? 100%. And it's amazing when you take a step back and think about those parallels, how many parallels you can actually find between the two. Jay, it's been awesome talking to you. Tell everybody where they can go buy their own rocket log. In this last day, this day now, you can go to our Kickstarter campaign. Just type in rocket logs, R-O-C-K-I-T, just like you rocket uh, through a stereo rocket logs is the product line. Otherwise you can go to our, uh, uh our website, portmanteau, P O R T M A N T E A U stereo.com. You'll not only see the rocket logs, but you'll see our other products. We do, we do beer pong table stereos for your man cave or your sports bar, or your business games room. You can put in your logos. You can again, change your stains. Um, you can, you can design your own coffee table for your home, you can, again, pick your stains, all those kind of things. And you can also design your on-the-go ghetto blaster from a reclaimed suitcase that you can choose. You know, we're a lifestyle company. We're a cultural company. We want to create something that really is a showpiece for you, and not only in your home, but for on-the-go that matches you and your lifestyle. So, you know, again, thank you, Philip, for, for your time. Thank you for putting some effort into helping us. And uh, hopefully you guys can see we're, uh, you know, we're putting our energy into being a, a craft and boutique stereo that you guys will find way more unique and way more cool for your sound. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jay. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. So as Jay mentioned, 
If you want to check out the Kickstarter today, Tuesday, February the 21st is the last day that it's live. Congrats to the team. They had over $60,000 pledged to the project for a $50,000 goal, so it's fully funded. I really appreciate Jay sharing his valuable, actionable content with everybody. Here are my top three takeaways for the episode. Number one, understand design factors intimately. Listening to the interview, it's clear that Jay was really hands-on with the testing and production of rocket logs. By experiencing the issues and solutions firsthand, he was able to make decisions about the final design much easier. This knowledge is essential when iterating the design quickly, and I think it's one of the worst steps to outsource as a product founder. Number two, decide what you want to be when you grow up. Jay knew that he didn't want to grow the portmanteau stereo company into a giant company shipping millions of units. This decision influenced the manufacturing and growth strategy for the company early on, and also it shaped how they marketed products to consumers. This enabled the company to differentiate itself from mainstream brands at the same price point. And number three, don't give customers too much choice. Jay realized early on that too many configurations would overcomplicate production, so he standardized on the technology behind the sound, something that customers were probably least likely to want to decide for themselves, and then he narrowed down the visual options to items that had low impact to production. This way, the customer still got a unique, personalized product without affecting the bottom line. If you'd like to get these takeaways in your inbox every week, just go to theproductstartup.com and scroll to the footer of any page, and then sign up to the weekly wrap-up at the bottom. At the end of each week, you'll get my three takeaways for each guest, along with interesting articles or free tools, and maybe some inspiring innovations to help you with your own product startup. As usual, if you've got any questions or comments, I've put all the links that we've covered under the show notes posted on theproductstartup.com slash 41. I've also set up a phone number for you to call and leave a question or feedback for the show. You can also pitch your product startup to the show audience. Leave me a message at 681-321-1115. If you're going to pitch the product startup audience about your product-based business, please keep your pitch to 30 seconds or about the time that you would have to talk to somebody in an elevator. Don't forget to include the problem that you're solving and the call to action, what you need us, the listeners, to do for you. Join me next time as I speak with Stacy Marking with Lemongrass Trading Company about all natural insecticides and fragrances. We get into paid research, testing, design, branding, and packaging. So tune in next week to hear that episode. Thanks again for joining me today, and I will see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Mako Design and Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end -end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Mako Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.